Good afternoon. Good. There is someone here. Excellent. We're very excited that you've joined us again for this afternoon's program. And if you're anything like me and you were here this morning, you are looking forward to hearing what else Kale has to present to us. So just to let you know what is happening now, Kale's going to get up in a moment and um, continue presenting to us for a short while. It will feel like a short while, like this morning. And then we will have a short break again, just a little bit of afternoon tea, and then there will be a panel discussion. There'll be four people up here to discuss Kale's book. And not that I'm doing an advertisement, Kale hasn't paid me today, but this is my personal copy of Kale's book. I was lucky enough last year to be one of Kale's students um, studying New Testament apocalypses. And this was our textbook. And um, it's a book that I really, really enjoyed last year. There are many passages that have been underlined and reread and referred to again. And I did want to share one little bit that I underlined with you today because it was something that, a chapter that I was particularly excited about and um, enjoyed the way Kale um, explained the parallels that we find between the identity of, and the role of the land beast. It was something that um, I remember making copious amount of notes on was visiting someone and was talking about it and oh, I need to see your notes. So it was a really well-written chapter for me. Um, but the, one of the things that you said that really stuck out for me, which is highlighted, and you will see the yellow, I'm not fibbing, is this conflict is intensely spiritual and will not be clearly seen by the world or even Christians who are not grounded in scripture and do not have a living walk with Jesus. Um, and that challenged me because it will not be clearly seen by the world. We can all go, yeah, okay, or by Christians. And um, as Christians, we are challenged to know scripture and to have a living, breathing relationship with Christ. And so I'd like to pray now as we head into our, our next presentation. And I'm just going to start with Psalm 145 before I finish our prayer. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his compassion is over all that he has made. All your works, that's us, shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your faithful shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known all people your mighty deeds and the glorious splendour of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Merciful God, loving God, we just bow our heads here and we acknowledge that you are our king. You are our Lord and we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to come together this afternoon and to hear your word preached again. Lord, open our hearts now. Send your spirit to prepare us for your message. May you reveal yourself to us that we may know that we can have a living, breathing, walking relationship with you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Oh, well, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you, Sylvia, for that lovely welcome. My, oh, my, wasn't lunch good? Lunch was beautiful. So to um, the team that prepared lunch, perhaps many of them are not here. Uh, wow, that was a fabulous lunch. How about dessert? The main course. Was that a main course or what? <laughs> 
So I think we must convey our sincere appreciation to the ladies who have done an outstanding job. It's good to be able to talk to you this afternoon. And look, uh, I'm just going to be sharing some thoughts and some insights on um, how to understand the book of Revelation. And later on, when we have our panel discussion, I think the, uh, the panelists might have some questions and some comments. And I think it'll be nice to actually open it up to you as well at that time. Questions, comments, please feel free. And I think we could share together. But uh, essentially, I'd like to just give you some, some very big picture stuff on, uh, on how to understand uh, the book of Revelation. Now, in, in 1991, uh, you may recall, perhaps you may not recall, a, a new kind of book, um, how-to book, emerged on local bookshelves. And uh, I'm, of course, referring to, uh, to the Dummy series. Now, when the books first came out, they weren't a massive hit. They really weren't, because booksellers and retailers were skeptical. I mean, you accusing the public of being dummy. You know, will they really buy the notion and actually purchase the book? Well, lo and behold, the books were a massive success. Over 100 million copies have been sold in over 40 countries. I mean, I wish I was dumb enough to write one myself. New editions, of course, have come out. Initially, they were focused on the internet, you know, DOS for dummies, Windows for dummies, the internet for dummies. And then a whole range of different books began to emerge. Um, Law for dummies. Now, of course, if you go and see an attorney and you, he's got that book on his uh, bookshelf, I think you need to leave very quickly. Uh, potty training for dummies. I wish that had been published when our kids were, you know, little. NASCAR for dummies. Uh, this is probably one of the shorter dummies because, I mean, all it is is keep left and go faster than the other car. That's pretty simple. Gambling for dummies. Uh, I don't know, but this, this could be quite an appropriate title. I don't know what other kind of gambler there is. Uh, gambling for dummies. So today I thought we'd look at um, Revelation for dummies. Now, I'm not you're all very smart, I'm sure, and savvy. Uh, it's probably me that still has, has a lot to learn. You know, when you get a PhD, you know a whole lot of stuff about just a very, you know, just a, just a little bit of information. So uh, I did my PhD in the trumpets, so I know a little bit just about that section, and uh, that's, that's really about it. Some key principles. Duh. Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's, it's primarily his revelation, isn't it? Uh, I shared this morning, uh, Apocalypsis. Uh, unveiling, disclosure, unfolding. And so as we study the book, we need to look intently, uh, carefully, at where it is that we can find Jesus. And of course, there are dozens of descriptions and dozens of names with which Jesus is referred to. One of them we highlighted this morning is Lamb, 28 times it's founded in the book. Not coincidental, seven, the number of completion and perfection. Uh, four, the number of dominance and control showing worldwide scope. Seven times four, 28. So it's not coincidental that the Lamb is mentioned 28 times in the book of Revelation. That, in fact, is uh, the dominant title for Jesus in the book of Revelation. The opening vision well, Revelation 1 is the opening, 2 and 3, Revelation 4. Revelation 5, which we reflected on this, this morning, uh, highlights Jesus as the Lamb. And then we go to Revelation 6, 
And as each of the seals are open, in fact, the Lamb, John, has fulfilled the covenant. There's no question about that. The Lamb has fulfilled God's covenant, and He can take rulership, He can take ownership, and rule and reign with God over the cosmos on the basis of His death and resurrection. When we get to Revelation 6, each of those seals are opened, and the Lamb is present in each of them. Then we get to the seventh seal, and um, strangely enough, there's silence, Revelation 8.1. But the Lamb is still in the background. And the seventh seal is, in fact, leads into the blowing of the seven trumpets. But don't forget, in the background of the, of the seventh seal is still the Lamb. So we get to the blowing of the trumpets, and the Lamb is still there. We get to the end, Revelation 11.18, the kingdom uh, from verse 15. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And so the Lamb becomes the controlling symbol, the controlling image for all of what unfolds from Revelation 6 onward. And then we, the Lamb kind of you know, disappears as we go through those chapters and then surfaces again in Revelation 13. Revelation 13, the Lamb slain, from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8. A reminder taking us right back to Revelation 5, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So nuanced in the background of Revelation is the controlling symbol of Jesus as the lamb. What does that do to our reading of Revelation? When we think of perhaps the violent imagery, when we think of perhaps the suffering that the book may portray, uh, when we think of our interpretation, we need to keep in the back of our minds the fact that the Lamb is that controlling symbol. Let's read together Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 to 18. Revelation chapter 1 and uh, verses 12 to 18. Now, if this was a class, I'd be picking on you. My students are quite f familiar with my tactics. And so um, I, don't, I don't know everyone here. But let's get some people, let's get some people to read. Okay, I'm going to pick on Kevin to please start reading for us. Um, Kevin is there. Kevin, I'll ask Kevin to read 12 and 13. My very good friend Bevan is here. Let's get Bevan to read what's it, 14 and 15. And then uh, W.A. Terry, I was going to say Terry. Can you read for us, Terry, after Bevan? I think what maybe 16, 16 17, uh, and that should about take us to the end. Thank you, Kevin. Rochelle, you know, verse 14, Revelation 1. The one, the joys of our devices. Thanks, Bevan. Terry? Revelation 5 and the introduction of the Lamb kind of provides the controlling symbol for the rest, of the, the rest of the chapters that unfold. These opening verses provide the control for Revelation 2 and 3. The symbols that are, that are attached to the person of Jesus, um, all of these various symbols here emerge in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, for, example, for example, turn the page to Revelation chapter 2 or just in your device. Revelation 2, verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. 
That language is from Revelation 1, 12 to 18. Have a look at uh, Revelation 2, 8. Revelation 2, 8. These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Have a look at Revelation 2, 13. Uh, pardon me, 2, 12. 2, 12. These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. So each particular symbol that's referenced in Revelation 1, 12 to 18, is taken and applied to a particular church in Revelation 2 and 3 based on the needs of that church. And so, for example, a church that might be on the verge of apostasy, Jesus is portrayed, for example, the church of Pergamum as having the sharp, double-edged sword. This church is going to head into apostasy and Jesus is portrayed as the Word of God. He will meet the need of this church in terms of rectifying their path to destruction. Have a look at 1.8. The words of him who was the first and the last. Why is that? Well, this church is going to be threatened with persecution and death. But hold on. Jesus is the first and the last. So Revelation 1, 12 to 18 provide the controlling symbols for Jesus to understand Revelation 2 and 3, just as the Lamb is the controlling symbol in Revelation 5, Revelation 6, and the chapters that unfold thereafter. Uh, Richard Borkham, a noted New Testament scholar, has suggested that every symbol in the book has been chosen with meticulous care and the utmost precision. Now, some scholars, critical scholars, say, you know, John, um, the book of Revelation was composed over, you know, 20 or 30 years by what's called redact different people, and scholars give them the name redactor, you know. So there were a whole range of redactors over, over perhaps 20 or 30 years that composed this book. How else can we attribute the ingenuity of this literary masterpiece other than saying, you know, a couple of people edited the book, co-edited the book, reworked the book over 20 to 30 years. As Adventist Christians, we say, well, the book is a literary masterpiece because it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit on John's mind and on John's heart. This, in fact, is the only text of Scripture that's referred the Greek is en numati, in the spirit. It's the only text in scripture where the text itself is clearly articulated as a charismatic text. It's a spiritual text. And so it's, it's literary craftsmanship. It's not because it took 20, 30 years to compose or there were various redactors, but because John was inspired by the spirit on Patmos and it's the Spirit, the author of both the Old Testament and the book of Revelation, that helped him in crafting this masterpiece. To see Jesus in vision, after spending three and a half years with him in life and ministry, would have been something truly amazing for John. I don't know if you considered that. You know, the very same Jesus that John had fellowshiped with and walked with he now saw him as the risen, conquered, triumphant Lord. 
There's a dude from yesteryear called Rudolf Bultmann. And if ever you study the New Testament, you've got to wrestle with this German scholar because he's quite a profound thinker and has made an enormous contribution to understand the New Testament. And he wrestled with the Christ of faith, the Christ who was in our heart, and the Christ of history, the real historical person of Jesus. And Bultmann, this New Testament scholar, 1940s, 1950s, uh, saw in his mind the Christ of faith and the Christ of history as incompatible. He, he couldn't reconcile the two. I think John's book does an amazing job because John saw the Christ of history, the real Jesus walking the dusty streets of Palestine. Now in vision, he sees that same Jesus, of course glorified, sinless, perfect. He now sees him in the throne of God, symbolically portrayed as the Son of Man in Revelation 1, as the Lamb and all of these other beautiful images. If there's any book in the New Testament that confirms that the Christ of history and the Christ of faith are indeed the same, mediated by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's the book of Revelation. The Jesus we serve is not some theory or pie in the sky, but a real historical person. And that person triumphed over death, ascended into the third heaven, and is interceding on our behalf right now. There's some nights, some nights, I take the burn out, and I look up at the stars, you know, and I think, man, pff, Jesus is up there. Do you know what I mean? Jesus is up there, glorified, sinless, perfect, holy. Jesus is up there. <sighs> Just blows my mind. Just blows my mind. The historicity of Jesus, the historicity, the historical truthfulness of Jesus is unquestioned, unquestioned. And you and I can have confidence that our faith is grounded and not a, a principle or something abstract or something, uh, some literary figure, or, but a real person, a real glorified, sinless, holy God-man, unique within the universe, unique within the universe who's there interceding on your and on my behalf today. There's a principle in New Testament studies called the principle of multiple attestation. It means that you've got to have a whole range of different sources to verify a fact. The more sources you have, the more sources you have, the greater the truthfulness of the fact that you're adhering to or trying to advocate. And when we read the Gospels, coincidentally, John authored both the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. And when we look at the Gospels, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we've got stuff in Luke, like the parables. Do we find that in any other of the Gospels? No, we don't. So Luke has got some special stuff that's found nowhere else. Have a look at this text very quickly. Acts 20, 35. Just turn in your Bible. Acts 20.35. Acts 20.35. And the case I'm making is that the Jesus John saw in vision is the Jesus that walked upon the earth. That's the case I'm trying to make. John 20, uh, Acts 20, pardon me. Acts 20.35. 
Now, where did Jesus say those words? Can anyone direct me, please? What gospel did Jesus say that? Well, the bottom line is none of the gospels quote, right? Acts 20, 35. So clearly there's some other material. So this principle of multiple attestation, the gospels, special stuff in Luke, special stuff in Matthew, special stuff in Mark, other sources, other oral tradition that we know nothing of, all give us solid historical data on which to ground, and our faith needs evidence, to ground our faith in the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. The historicity of Jesus, the truthfulness of Jesus as a real person and as the God-man in heaven, confirms this afternoon that the, that the book of Revelation, that the book of Revelation also chronicles for us real historical events. And we see that, especially this afternoon, in the prophetic sections of Revelation, where clearly and convincingly we see the movement of God within history. So the person of Jesus, I hope you get my point, the person of Jesus, his truthfulness verifies the fact that within history, the same God is working in and through play and counterplay of human prowess to accomplish his will and his purpose. So we've touched on some of those points, and I think it's beautiful to consider that Jesus meets the needs of each of the churches and assuring them of his care and of his love. Second big point to consider, second big point to consider, the book of Revelation is more of a song or a poem than it is a puzzle or a code. In fact, we need to learn how to read Revelation since in all of literature, it has a unique genre. It's, it's a letter, it's a prophecy, and it's, it's an apocalypse. All three of those are combined to help us to understand this book. And we get our interpretation wrong. Our interpretation is under serious question when we only focus on prophecy. Now, I confess, as Adventists, that's what we've done. We haven't read it in, in the context of its, of its other two genres, and we've somewhat focused exclusively on the prophetic dimension of prophecy, and within prophecy itself, we've restricted ourselves to the predictive element of prophecy. But prophecy is more than that, right? Prophecy is not just about prediction, Prophecy is also about the prophet speaking into the situation in which the people found themselves. So it's about prosecution. Right? It's about prosecuting God's will in the local context within which people find themselves. Yes, it's also about prediction, but it's also about prosecution. And as Adventists, sometimes we've gotten that wrong, and we focused exclusively on the predictive element within prophecy. So, the book's got 16 hymns. References to prayer, references to incense. It's a radical call to worship God as creator, the Lamb as Savior. It's an encounter with the Holy that causes us to see new ways, to imagine a world that is one with God, and to celebrate now the presence of the future. To celebrate now the presence of the future. 
the whole of the New Testament is built on this already not yet tension. Already we, or, you know, um, Paul can say things like, we are saved, and then he'll say things like, we are still being saved. Right? Uh, he'll say things like, you know, uh, uh, he'll say things like, you know, in Christ we, we've been resurrected. And then he'll say things like, uh, we await with longing anticipation, Romans 8, the resurrection that is to come. Very, very important principle. This principle of already and not yet. We are saved, but we're still waiting for the consummation of our salvation. And that principle of already not yet in New Testament theology, it's part of your journey and it's part of my journey. In terms of certainty and uncertainty, we live with the certainty Jesus is coming back again. But we live with the uncertainty of we don't know when. So we've got to navigate that already and that not yet corporately as a church, individually in our walk with God. And the same applies to the book of Revelation. The book assures us that victory is now, victory is certain, victory is assured. But hold on, hold on. The ultimate victory is still going to come. The ultimate victory is still going to come. And so the book presents us with that, with that tension, which is very much a part of your and my experience. I think we rob the book of its, of its dynamism, its richness, and we draw one-to-one correspondence between the symbols and meaning. And I'll, I'll point that out in just a moment. The symbols are emotive. Speak to our emotions, right? They're polyvalent. In other words, they can be... They can, be a, they can be referenced or applied to many different situations. And we rob the book if we say, oh, that's what it means. That's what it applies to. Sadly, again, there's been an Adventist approach. You know, there's been an Adventist approach. Let me say something about that. There's nothing new under the sun, according to the wise man. And I'm really grateful to stand on the shoulders of Adventist giants like Hans Lorandel, you know, John Pauline, and Ranko Stefanovic. And my current research and current study is based on the excellent exegetical foundation these scholars have laid. So when you read my work, you'll find in the footnotes lots of references to these Adventist scholars because I'm trying to build on some of the work that they are doing. And what I appreciate is the exegetical foundation upon which they are setting our beliefs as Adventists. So having said that, previously we might, particularly, and I've been an evangelist for a number of years, so you know, all the fingers are pointing at me. When we present revelation as, you know, that's the symbol, there's the answer. You know, that's the symbol, there's the answer. Revelation is far more complex than that simple one-to-one correspondence. And it's that richness and it's that beauty that I believe we've got to take hold of. In fact, the early churches in the seven churches were hearers more than readers. Revelation 1, 3. Would someone like to read that for us, please? Revelation 1 and verse 3. Any takers? Anyone? I'd like to read Revelation 1 verse 3. Tony, um, Jackie's better half. Could you read for us, please? Thank you, Tony. Sorry for picking on you. Thank you, Tony. The time is near. In fact, the reader there is in the Greek is singular. 
single reader, and the hearers, and the hearers. And so, in its original setting, remember the early Christians were largely illiterate, right? They were largely illiterate. In its original setting, Revelation was an oral encounter with Jesus as the reader read the messages in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and Laodicea, and the Spirit of God would have been there in a very powerful and real way as Revelation was read and appropriated by the hearers. Now, what's very interesting is that Greco-Roman culture within which the book emerged is a visionary culture. Very interesting. When you came into Ephesus, boom! You saw the baths and you saw the, uh, the gymnasium and you saw all of the, the, uh, the paraphernalia of the Roman Empire. It was a visual empire, right? The Jewish culture, interestingly, is an oral culture. It's an oral culture. You know the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4? Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord, the God, is one. So here you have the Hebraic culture based on orality. And then you've got the Greco-Roman culture, which is, which is based on sight and vision. Isn't it interesting that that's the way we've gone? You know, we have the big pictures of the beast and the animals and the horns and you know, we've just, we've just gone into, of course it's a different cultural context, but we've gone into the Greco-Roman understanding of the symbols with vision and picture. And yes, that's the world we live in. I understand that. But I think it's an interesting critique on our culture when originally, when originally the book was meant to be heard. And in hearing, God was able to speak to his people as they appropriated the, the symbols in the context of their scripture, which is the Old Testament. So I find that an interesting dynamic. Just maybe, I don't know. It's great to see some younger people here. It's awesome that you're here. Just maybe, I don't know. But, but going, future, uh, going into the future, that may be a way in which we engage younger people you know, in studying the book of Revelation. Uh, instead of all the pictures, yes, I know it's a digital media age, but try to engage it in, in terms of its experiential component and hearing it would be quite fascinating. In fact, I've just written another book uh, which has recently been published um, by Peter Lang called An Oral Performance Analysis of the Book of Revelation. And it's an academic book for an academic audience. But I was over in the Solomon Islands uh, two years ago running some evangelism. And I share these insights with the Solomon Island pastors. Uh, with James? With the Solomon Island pastors. And they were so excited because they said to me, well, we, have, we live in an oral culture. You know, we live in an oral culture. And they were very excited about the, the fresh approach to kind of hearing revelation. I don't know, but I think that would be quite interesting to explore. Okay, let's look at the symbols, and there they are. So there's all these symbols, right? Tree of life. Going back to Genesis, the crown of life, the white stone. You know, the white stone, there are probably 12, 12 applications of the white stone. You know, you got invited to a wedding, you got a white stone. You uh, were released from prison, you got a white stone. Many applications to, all, to, to, to a whole range of different symbols. Dressed in white, 
the pillar in God's temple, the name of God. Can I suggest that all these different symbols, in Revelation 2 and 3 at least, all these different symbols speak about the perfect unity that will be between God and His people. That's the ultimate reference that the symbols have. Now the dwelling of God is with His people. It's God's burning desire. You know, the, the, the temple curtain was torn in two because of God's great desire to reunite and be one with us. So I propose in Revelation 2 and 3, all of those symbols, yes, there are other applications. No question about that. But overall, I'd suggest they point to that theme of perfect unity between God and humanity. Prophecy speaks, I believe, both to the heart and to the head. It stirs emotion and cognition. Have a look at Revelation 22. Re Revelation 22. And let's look at the last depiction of Jesus in the book. Revelation 22. And let's read verse 16. Revelation 22 and verse 16. Would someone like to please read for us? Thank you. I'm the bright and morning star. And of course, Lucifer, Ben, Hal, um, um, ben Al Shalal in the, in, the, uh, in the Hebrew means son of light, right? son of the dawn in Isaiah 14, 12. Right? So clearly, the book ends with victory for the true morning star, Jesus Christ. That's the final symbol that's pointing to Jesus. And have a look at what Peter says about that morning star in 2 Peter 1.19. Let's go there, please. 2 Peter 1.19. 2 Peter 1.19. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns. Hold on to your seat. And the morning star rises in your heart. Wow, the morning star, Jesus. And where does he want to rise? In your heart and in my heart. And so the variety of expressions of future rewards in Revelation 2 and 3 allow us to pre-experience a small part of what it might be like to be in God's presence. The message of the book is not meant to be decoded, but rather encoded in our hearts, encoded in our lives. The morning star desires to arise within our hearts and for his kingdom to grow and be made manifest in our own hearts, in our own experience, in our own lives. It's difficult to meet Adventists who are a prophetic people and they're grouchy and grumpy. You know, it's, when the morning star rises in your heart, then you ought to be full of joy and full of happiness. Oh, of course, we're human. You'll have your bad days. But overall, we should be a people characterized by the morning star who has risen within our hearts. The cross of Jesus Christ, I'm convinced, is the great center of the book. The book is a chiasm. And a chiasm was a, a literary technique used back in those days. So A... A, B, B, C, C, D, D, E, E, and perhaps F. 
So the chiasm, the, the end and the beginning, right? Oh, pardon me, the beginning and the end. And so A in the beginning and A at the end, that kind of correlate, similar ideas. And then B at the end and B at the beginning, similar ideas. C at the end, C at the beginning, similar ideas. So the whole book, the whole of the book is a massive, a macro. It's a macro chiasm, right? It's a macro chiasm. Oh, it's a, I tell you what, it really is a literary masterpiece. And you know, so I've had a, a love affair with it now since I was a you know, 12-year-old boy. But chiasm, the chiasm in Revelation 12, have a look at that. You've got A, the war between the woman and the dragon. You've got A at the bottom, the war between the dragon and the woman's seed. You've got B, the escape of the son and the mother. You've got B, the escape of the woman. C, now this is the, the center. This is the center of the book of Revelation, the cosmic conflict between Christ and Satan, the war in heaven, Revelation 12, 7 to 12. Now, what's pretty cool is, you know, we've got, this is not a biased Adventist position, right? There's a whole range of evangelical scholarship that understand Revelation 12 in the same way, but not the manner in which we as Adventists understand the cosmic conflict. So, 1217 addresses the cosmic conflict. Can I suggest then that the epicenter, the epicenter of the book of Revelation is 12, 10 and 11. Now, there are, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of the brothers who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. That language is legal. It's forensic language. Satan was excommunicated. He was hurled out of heaven, right? He was hurled out of heaven at the cross. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony. Interesting there, the notion of word is not the Greek word logos, you know, principle, rational idea, but it's the Greek word rhema, the spoken word, the spoken word, the rhema. Matthew 4, Luke 4, when Jesus met Satan in the wilderness, he spoke the rhema, he spoke the word of God. He spoke the word of God. And to speak the word of God means that you're full of the word of God. Right? The word of God is in you. It's, 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 it's in you it's, and it's oozing out of you. It's overflowing out of you. That constitutes the word of their testimony. It's the word of God that's coming out of them in terms of their testimony, their experience of this word, in this word, through this word. Sadly, as Adventists, we've been far more cognitive in our appropriation of the word, haven't we been? Far more cognitive, you know, rather than transformative, rather than an encounter with the word that transforms us, an encounter with prophecy where Jesus, not that I can argue and debate. I tell you, I just switch off when I talk to people who want to argue and debate all sorts of fine points of prophecy, Give me a break. The purpose of prophecy is that the morning star rises in our hearts. And pardon me, maybe those were not the best words in terms of my own attitude, so pardon me for saying that, but you know what I, what I was trying to get across in saying, you know, give me a break. The idea should be not to debate and argue those finer points of prophecy, but rather that the morning star truly, truly emerges within our hearts. That's the intent. That's the purpose. So they overcame him 
by the, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives. Check this out. Check this out. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Wow. I mean, what is it, you know, that, that leads, you know, John Knox, you know, you know, give me, you know, give me Scotland or I die. You know, I mean, where does that passion for the lost come from, you know? What leads John Huss, you know, to lay his life down for Jesus? They, they loved, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What is that? What is that that brings you to that place where you you know, Paul says in Romans, I'd rather be accursed than Israel be lost. What brings you to that place? You know, Moses says, Father, no, 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 you know, God, I want them to be saved. You know, kick me out of the kingdom. I want Israel to be saved. What leads you to that place? You know, what leads you to that place? So, I've got, they didn't love their lives because Jesus didn't love his. By the way, the faith of the martyrs is given when it's needed. So don't stress too much. The faith of the martyrs is given when it's needed. When the time comes, the Spirit of God will empower you. The Spirit of God will empower you because Jesus is so real to you. Jesus is like the air that you breathe. He's so real to you that uh, the faith of the martyrs will be given to you and you'll be ready to lay down your life. So they don't love their lives because they look to Jesus. And he didn't love his. And the pretty cool thing about the gospel is that Jesus isn't calling us to die. He's calling us to live, to live for him. Yes, to die to self, but to live for him, right? To live for him. And that was certainly the context in, um, in the first century world. The book of Revelation assures us that the victory Jesus achieved is our victory too. The saints overcome just as Jesus overcame. Only overcomers enter the new Jerusalem. How is it possible? Well, overcoming, again, is not something we achieve. It's something we receive from Jesus. Amen to that? Something we receive. The, the kingdom of God is the gifts. The gifts. It's all gifts. Nothing is earned. Nothing is self-generated. Nothing is produced. The kingdom of God, you love, you just receive these gifts. Best kingdom in the world. You just receive these. Overcoming is a gift. It's a gift from Jesus. He who overcomes will inherit. Will inherit. What do you, you? You inherit something that... Right? Your father gives you something that you inherit. Right? He who overcomes will inherit all of this. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. He will be my daughter. Finally, this afternoon, the book of Revelation declares that the end is good news indeed. Have a look at this chiasm. Massive chiasm. God creates the earth. Adam takes the bride. Sin enters creation. Sin exits creation. Lamb takes the bite. God recreates the earth. There's the final chiasm. that kind of just puts it all in perspective. Puts it all in perspective. The beautiful plan of salvation that God has designed for you and I. The end is good news. And in fact, the end has already been lived in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And His victory is your victory. His victory is is our victory. And so we go into the future holding his hand, he holding our hand, because our future is assured. His victory is our victory.
Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we've shared just a few thoughts together today. I pray it'll bless each one here as they read and they study the book of Revelation. And importantly, Lord, that we'll find you, Jesus, and we'll fall more in love with you every day. Bless each one here and their walk with you. I pray, Jesus, you'll become more real to them every day and you'll become indeed a special friend to each one. We thank you for being with us in this time. We offer this prayer in your wonderful name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.